Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney and the CEO of the United States Study Centre. Thank you for joining us this evening. Um, the Mint here, as is the University of Sydney, uh, stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, and I acknowledge uh, their elders past, uh, present and emerging. Um, for the last two days, the United States Study Centre uh, with support from the US State Department, represented tonight by the Consul General, Sharon Hudson-Dean. We've convened an event entitled Indo-Pacific Strategic Futures. You can see the, the banner behind me. And that event has brought together strategic affairs analysts, scholars, practitioners from government departments and agencies from Australia, the United States, Japan, India, Indonesia, and the Philippines. A remarkable accomplishment in and of itself. But the aim of the dialogue is straightforward enough to describe, but daunting when you hear it. The Indo-Pacific is the strategic crucible of this age and for the rest of our lifetimes, most likely. In the face of rapid changes in economic power, in military and technological capabilities, nation states are being tested, as are those charged with conducting and devising the foreign policy of those nations, as well as their economic policies, decisions about R&D spending, technology, education, and of course, defense. Recent years and events vividly remind us that the vectors of state power are manifold, state power has never just arrived in things painted battleship gray, but that fact is no more uh, present and salient than it is in these days, in these years to come. And dealing with the challenges that those changes pose to the region has been the task of the Indo-Pacific Strategic Futures Group. So for two days, they've been holed up in a hotel not too far from here with a group of scholars deliberately chosen with a younger skew, because it is that creativity about our strategic destiny, the choices we will make as individual nation states, but collectively in the Indo-Pacific, that so much rides on. And so um, it was pushing on open door when we pitched this event to the State Department of the United States that we would convene this event with a skew towards younger scholars with, a, with skin in the game, as we say, about, about getting the analysis right and the policy recommendations that will follow. Now, you would think after two days of talking, uh, the aforementioned foreign policy analysts might have had enough. But no, that's the thing about foreign policy analysts. They're ready um, to, to go a little bit longer tonight. And so as is in the nature of those events, uh, the event has been Chatham House. Um, but what we decided to do tonight was to bring together uh, a few representatives, a, a good cross-national sampling, if you will, of, of experts uh, who have been at the, at the event, to have a conversation with a wider audience, perhaps informed, I hope, uh, by some of the give and take and the del deliberations of the last two days. And so that's our, that's our goal tonight, to take some of the, the learnings uh, and, uh, that have been going on uh, in, in a, in a closed-door setting opening uh, that dialogue up uh, to, to a lay audience uh, tonight, and we're delighted to be able to do that uh, here at the Mint. To, to MC the show from here on in, um, and, and indeed 
The MC uh, of the last two days uh, is the director of the US Studies Center's uh, program in foreign policy and defense, Ashley Townsend. And Ashley, I'd invite you to, to introduce the speakers and the panel and, and run the show from here on in. Thank you very much. And thank you for everything you've done uh, to make the event such a success over the last couple of days. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Simon, for that uh, generous introduction and for uh, giving the audience uh, a taste of what it is that we've just been doing the past couple of days. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome this evening uh, to the Mint, uh, again to this event sponsored by the US State Department, for whom we're extremely grateful for their generous support of this activity. Um, as Simon said, the event that we've been doing for the last couple of days, although he didn't go into a great amount of detail, is kind of like a really um, loose version of Risk. Uh, if, anyone have, if anyone's played the game Risk, where you essentially compete for your own country's interests and uh, do so over time and across space globally, uh, what we have done is zero in on a few of the areas that are critical to the stability uh, and the openness and the freedom of the Indo-Pacific in the coming 20 years through to 2040. And we've devised a game that allows um, former officials, current officials, academic scholars, and other experts um, to work their way, not just through particular uh, crises as they arise, whether they be the geoeconomic space or whether they be maritime security crises, but also navigate um, what is the central uh, dynamic underpinning all of the above, which is a relative power transition in the Indo-Pacific. Some countries in 2040, uh, particularly some of our neighbours in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, will be vastly more powerful uh, than they are today. Uh, countries like Australia and Japan will struggle. We know that. The foreign policy uh, um, white paper released by the Australian government two years ago underscores that point, that by 2030 even, Australia is not the relatively more powerful country in its own neighbourhood that it is today. For the United States, with global responsibilities, it's got some hard choices to make about focusing and prioritising its energy. For countries like India, um, growth is just beginning to take off in 2040. And obviously China, um, its growth continues in the absence of any major domestic shock, we predict. So we've been navigating those structural power drivers as well as particular crises. But let's put this into a policy perspective. Most of you who come to our events are familiar particularly with the Australia-US alliance and the Australia-US relationship. And we'll know that a couple of weeks ago the Osmin Dialogue was held. It's an annual dialogue between Australian and American foreign policy and defence, uh, foreign affairs rather, and defence ministers and secretaries. Um, last year at Osmin, which was held in the United States, uh, you could fairly say was the first year that the Indo-Pacific region was front and centre of Osmin. It was not just what formed the bread and butter of the discussions and the uh, work plan that flowed from that, but it was also the issue that really animated both the anxieties and the aspirations of both countries. Um, that is, as Simon just alluded to, um, the future of the US-Australia alliance. But it's also the future of Australia's uh, independent, 
collective and, and, and multilateral relationships with the countries that are represented here tonight, India, Japan, as well as the United States. Um, so that is our future. It's highly dependent on the choices that countries make. It's highly dependent on the Indo-Pacific strategies that countries right now are struggling to work out and calibrate. And it's highly dependent on the ability of what's often called in the press the, the like-minded allies and partners of the United States or the like-minded allies and partners of Australia. It's highly dependent on the ability of that group to come together around some common positions on certain issues with regards to security, with regards to geoeconomics, um, trade, diplomacy, and other key aspects of international relations in our region. So tonight we're very fortunate to have uh, four people who have not only uh, practiced this at the policy level, but <coughs> studied this very deeply uh, as scholars in their own rights as well. And I'm going to introduce each before we begin uh, uh, from your right to left to go through, to hear a little bit about different national perspectives and what different countries are trying to achieve uh, before we turn it over to a discussion and get your thoughts and comments on the issue. Um, beside me, we have Raji Rajelapan, who previously worked at the National Security Council Secretariat in India, but is now a distinguished fellow and head of the Nuclear and Space Policy Program at the Indian think tank, the Observer Research Foundation. Uh, beside her is uh, Dr. Evan Fagenbaum, who is Vice President of Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, but is a twice-serving um, United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of State with a focus on China, Central Asia, and South Asia. Beside him, we have Su Sugio Takahashi, who previously worked at the Japanese Ministry of Defense, uh, where he was involved in the Office of Strategic Planning, and now does, if you like, a kind of similar job for the uh, national for the Japanese Ministry of Defense's uh, internal um, uh, think tank, if you like, the Institute for Defense Studies, where he's head of policy simulations. And finally, at the end, we have Lavina Lee, um, who is a researcher and academic at Macquarie University, and recently wrote a really interesting report for the U.S. Study Center on the Indo-Pacific strategy and the role of <coughs> democracy promotion by Australia, by the U.S. and others in our region which frankly couldn't be more timely considering the news and the sit-ins in Hong Kong right now. So please, before we get started, join me in once again thanking our panellists for this evening. Raji, I'm going to turn first uh, to you and ask you to explain a little bit your view on the concept of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and for this audience in particular, um, put the, uh, the Indo into the Indo-Pacific sure. for us. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you, Ashley, and uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, it's been an exciting couple of weeks, a couple of days in, uh, in uh, Sydney here talking about the Indo-Pacific. So I think the first and foremost, I want to look at the question as to why we be talking about the Quad, the Indo-Pacific, and the, a lot of trilaterals and minilaterals are happening. So why is that? What is the kind of logical reasoning as to why countries in the region are talking about these kind of things. And even India is becoming part of some of these formulations. So because traditionally, India has sat on the fence and most of the time. So India is getting pretty active. So what is driving some of these new developments? And I think that's the key from the Indian perspective. And that's what I want to talk about. So Asia, or the Indo-Pacific region itself, is in a state of flux. Uh, you, and I think the reasons are pretty, uh, pretty uh, hard, uh, not hard to find. Uh, one is you have the fastest growing economies in Asia. You have some of the fastest growing military powers in Asia. You have four of the uh, nuclear powers in Asia. So I think that itself adds to the kind of contestation that you see 
And then you have the region uh, suffering from some of the traditionally inherent baggages. Um, so the baggage of history weighs pretty strong. Uh, most of the major countries, when you look at it, they have gone into war with each other. They do have unresolved border and territorial issues, whether it is you talk about India and China, China and Japan, China, Russia. So all of this adds to the kind of complexities of the region that we see today. And uh, so I think when you look at it, so those are the, that's the geopolitical contextualizing factor that is kind of contributing to these new debates. But uh, India has not traditionally been a, a sort of a, an alliance partner with the US or anybody else for that matter. So how does India fit into these games? And how does India maneuver itself strategically to maximize its strategic options, at the same time minimize some of the vulnerabilities that it might come to in a sense, face in the coming years? So uh, at the same time, India has been situated in a region that has been not uh, shied away from alliance politics. We have had the US alliance play politics playing out in South Asia pretty, uh, pretty big. And you have the India, Pakistan, Afghanistan question. But more recently, you also have the larger Asian security dynamics that come into play. So, uh, uh, prompted by the rise of China, but you also have the rise of other powers uh, in nominal terms and marginal terms in uh, rise, of China, rise of India. But you also have the return of a normal nation in Japan. You have the re-emergence of Russia in a big way. So all of this is, again, posing important questions for how do we, uh, how do we fit ourselves in the strategic game, in a sense. Uh, India, I think, uh, favors all of these different kinds of minilaterals that are taking place, or trilaterals, or any number of new bilaterals taking place. For instance, India-Australia bilateral relations has picked up pace in the last couple of years in a big way. Uh, we have the India-US and Japan trilateral. And you have many more um, uh, minilaterals and other quadrilaterals that are taking place, uh, both at the track 1 level, but also track 1.5 and track 2 levels. Again, many more quadrilaterals are being tried out. And I think India prefers this kind of a setup to a more traditional alliance structure uh, because it does, especially India having belonged to the non-alignment camp for a very long time, it does prefer these kind of a thicket of these kind of groupings than the traditional alliance. But I think having said that, I think the US itself is moving away from the traditional alliance structure, I would think, because uh, it does come with a, a huge fee to pay. It has its own advantages, because one, for instance, you have a, a certain amount of deterrence value that brings the, that the alliance structure do bring in. But at the same time, it also comes with a, a big fee in terms of what you, what you are committing to, and so on and so forth. Uh, but for, from an Indian perspective, I think India has been gaining a lot more comfort with these minilaterals and trilaterals and the quadrilateral exercise, uh, exercise that is kind of taking shape for a second time, in a sense. And I think India will go along with these options uh, because it does not really tie ourselves. We don't tie ourselves uh, to any grouping in terms of through a legal arrangement or treaty-bound agreements and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it does give you a fair amount of flexibility in terms of who we want to partner with. Um, so I think uh, that's uh, as far as the uh, key objectives that is driving India to do some of these Indo-Pacific strategies is that one is that we don't want to see an Asia that is going to be dominated by one single power. We haven't specifically talked about any single nation, but we all know as to who are those capable powers that are capable of dominating the sphere, but also has shown the inclination, the temptation to dominate the Asian 
the Indo-Pacific sphere. So we don't want, I think this has been again articulated from the highest levels of the political leadership that India, uh, the U, in the Indo-Pacific region, should not be led by one single power. So that remains one point one for India. The second major objective is that we want to, uh, we want all of the major powers to respect international law, play by the rules of the, uh, rules of the road. Um, so rule-based order, rules-based order, I think that's the second critical input uh, that India is seeking to um, uh, sort of uh, take forward as we, uh, as we get engaged with the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, maybe I think I'll stop here and I'll be happy to take on additional comments. Yeah, no, sure. Thanks, Raji. And thanks for those comments. One question before we, before we move down the line uh, for the audience. What are India's interests in acting east? Uh, we've heard of the India's look east and then act east strategy. And by that looking at the map, it means that India is going to play an increasing role really in Southeast Asia. But what are India's interests there? I think uh, uh, when you look at it, I think uh, Asia is the, this 21st century, as they say, it, this is an Asian century. And if the Asian century is what we're talking about, uh, in, it is not going to be South Asia. It is not going to be West Asia. <coughs> it is going to be much of the uh, Asia, Southeast Asia. And I think, uh, especially for instance, uh, the first term of the Modi administration, uh, we have been paying particular attention to how we engage the uh, Southeast Asian countries in terms of creating greater linkages in economic terms, but also security and political dialogues. And I think the strategic component of this relationship with the, especially with the Southeast Asian countries, uh, have gotten a lot more traction in the last uh, five, 10 years in terms of building, um, uh, having security dialogues, political consultations, and so on and so forth on a much more regular basis. Uh, joint military exercises with, on a bilateral basis, but also there are trilateral as well as uh, slightly larger multilateral exercises that we do with the region. And I think those have been important in the context of multiple things. One is that, for instance, uh, when the 2005 tsunami happened, the Quad came together. That is because the, some of these major militaries have been working together, doing joint exercise and so on and so forth. So when a calamity hit you, these countries were able to uh, mobilize their forces really quickly, their navies in a very quick fashion uh, to respond to those crises. And that's something that is very critical for the uh, Southeast Asian countries also because they, have, they are prone to natural disasters on a fairly regular basis. So capable navies of the region, whether it is Japan, India, and the US, how do we sort of, and uh, Australia, how how do we how do we combine our forces? How do we join our hands, join hands, and uh, respond to? And later, at some stage, should things turn go down south, and then we do have these capable forces respond to any number of other contingencies as well. Uh, something that may be more strategic in nature, but hopefully we will not have to do that. These are also somewhat um, they do have a certain deterrent value in uh, uh, in that sense. So yeah, that's great. Right. And I think we will almost certainly return to the discussion about the quad between Australia, India, Japan, and the United States in a little bit. But first, going to Evan, the United States has recently released an Indo-Pacific strategy report through the Department of Defense. The United States has also reiterated for the first time, um, uh, sorry, mentioned for the first time in the past 12 months that the Indo-Pacific is now its priority region of interest. How do you understand American Indo-Pacific strategy? Okay. There is such a thing. Sure. Um, first of all, I've just turned 50 years old, so I want to thank Simon Jagman for classifying me as part of the younger skew. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, it's good to be in Sydney. Um, 
Indo-Pacific is the fashion in the United States. I was in Moscow not so long ago, and my business card says that I'm vice president for Asia at the Carnegie Endowment. So a Russian official said, I want to congratulate you on being a very brave American. You're the only American that still uses the word Asia anywhere in his title. It's all Indo-Pacific now. So it's true. It is the fashion. And in a certain sense, it reflects the natural geography of how the region is evolving, but also of where American interests are. But I think it's necessary, actually, to take a step back from the current administration, which is hard sometimes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Think about how the region's evolved over a 25-year time horizon and how the United States has evolved or not evolved in the face of change in this part of the world. Okay? So from my vantage point, if you think on a longer time horizon, the central strategic dynamic in the Indo-Pacific is the collision between economics and security. Or to put that another way, between economic integration and security fragmentation. So I can tell you the story of this part of the world, often implicating the exact same countries, in two completely contradictory ways. I can tell you the story of a region of countries that are trading together, investing together, building together, growing together. But I can also tell you the story of the region, often involving, as I said, the same countries. But in this instance, these are countries that are beset by powerful nationalisms, have territorial disputes. They are building blue water navies. They're arming for conflict. And pathologies that many of us, I think, thought were frozen in time have come back to the fore again. So for many years, I think in the United States, the working theory of the case was that economic integration would mitigate security competition. But if you've been paying attention to what's going on in the region, you will know not only is economic integration not mitigating security competition, it's intensifying. But worse, security and political competition and contestation are now bleeding back into economics in ways that have the potential to disrupt flows of goods, capital, people, and technology in very debilitating ways. And if you think that's just a China story, or a US-China story, look at Japan and Korea, two countries that have everything to play for, everything to play for, in terms of a productive economic relationship. And yet, for a variety of reasons that we don't need to go into now, are beset by political tensions and have now put each other on export control lists and so on. Okay, so against that 25-year backdrop, I have good news and bad news for the United States. And it's bigger than Donald J. Trump. So the good news is because there's no basis for collective security in this part of the world until China and Japan have a moment with each other similar to the moment that France and Germany had in Europe right? in the post-war period, there's really no basis for collective security in the Pacific, and to a lesser extent, China and India. Right? So that's good news because the United States was, is, and as far as my eyes can see, going to be a critical provider of security, either directly or indirectly, because people will free ride off the benefits of it for pretty much every country in the region, except for who? China. China. 
That's the good news. So it assures America's centrality, provided it invests in its alliances, updates its military platforms, makes the right choices about its military presence. But that's not the end of the story. So here's the bad news. <laughs> the bad news is that the region has changed dramatically in economic terms since the Asian financial crisis of 1997-98. And I would argue that there are two critical inflection points. One is that crisis, and the second is the global crisis in 2008. Right? The first was an inflection point because that was the moment when Asian governments and economies began to turn to one another not to the United States or to the institutions it prefers for solutions to the economic problems that bedeviled the region. You may remember, for example, in 1994, the United States bailed out Mexico and then refused to bail out Thailand three years later and paid, I would argue, a generational price in Southeast Asia for that decision. Along came the next phase of the Asian financial crisis. Does anybody remember the most famous photograph of the financial crisis? It was President Suharto of Indonesia with his head bowed, sitting at a desk, signing on to an IMF standby agreement, while the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Michel Camdesou, stood over him with his arms crossed like this. And it had huge domestic political impact in Indonesia, and President Suharto soon fell from power. So that was that kind of inflection point. And a lot of the pan-Asian ideas, pacts, institutions, swap arrangements, trade deals that we see successful or less successful trace their origin to that period. And many of these exclude the United States. All right, 2008 came along and it scrambled this even further because it really changed the economic structure in the region. Countries that were capital, capital importers became capital exporters. Asian economies were not just producers for export to the United States and other OECD economies, particularly in Europe, they became consumers of LNG, liquid net liquefied natural gas for their power plants, pork for their tables, soybeans for their animal feed. So the economic structure of producer and consumer turned around. Okay, so those were inflection points. Why does all of this matter? It matters for three reasons. The United States is facing a vastly different region than the one that it did 10 years ago, much less 15 years ago. And so if you wind the clock forward, and you cannot wind the clock backward, what's required of the United States is a level of suppleness, flexibility, and adaptability that I think we can debate what, whether the United States is adaptable. But I would argue that these structural trends pose the core challenge. And here, to summarize them pithily, are the three. Okay? One is, if you think about American leadership in this part of the world, it was premised on a security component and an economic component. The United States was a leader in the security space because it had alliances, including with Australia, forward deployed military presence, carrier battle groups, all the things that keep the peace in this part of the world. But that wasn't the end of the story. So I told you, there's no basis for collective security, so the US needs to invest in that. But given what I just told you about the regional economy, the United States needs to also think about what the pillars of its economic leadership were. There were two. One, it was the demand through which many of Asia's export-led economies powered their way to prosperity. And then second, it was the leader on regional trade and investment liberalization. And if you look at the structure of demand in this part of the world, the United States will never again be the demand driver that it was, given what I said about 2008 and its aftermath. 
compared to the 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, much less the 60s, which makes the other pillar, leadership on standard setting, trade liberalization, investment liberalization, technical standards, that much more important. US trade with every country in Asia is going up in absolute terms. It's declining everywhere in relative terms. But the United States has a big advantage. It's a standard setting nation. So ask yourself, is the United States playing that role? Is it stepping up to set the trade standards? The investment standards, we pulled out of TPP. It's not just a TPP story. But that is the core of the challenge structurally. And I would ask you rhetorically to think about how adaptive the United States has been, again, over multiple administrations. Second challenge, given what I said about the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, I predict to you that pan-Asian ideas, institutions, pacts, and ideologies will advance regardless of American preferences. You think that when China set up the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, that that is a whole story? It's a China story? You know who was advocating a pan-Asian institution in the 1990s without the United States? It wasn't China. You know who it was. <laughs> it was Japan, which proposed setting up an Asian monetary fund without the United States. Mm -hmm. Our close ally with a strong sense of trans-Pacific identity. And the United States, given power realities, back then could squash that kind of incipient regionalism. Much harder to do today. So pan-Asian ideas are not simply a Chinese invention. They didn't spring out of Xi Jinping's head like Athena <laughs> popping out of Zeus's head. They have deep roots in this part of the world. And that means the United States needs to pick its fights carefully. Does it need to be in every room, every conversation? Which ones matter, which don't? Finally, Asia writ large, East, Central, South, despite what you said, Raja, I think is becoming a much more integrated strategic and economic space. Economic. Partly this is the bias of my career. I was an East Asia guy. I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central Asia. Then I was Deputy <laughs> Assistant Secretary of South Asia. I kind of, my career in Genghis Khan that sort of converged. I moved my way around <laughs> Asia, right? If you look at the trajectory of the region, that region that I just described, from Japan to Turkmenistan to Sri Lanka, it is becoming more Asian than Asia Pacific more continental than subcontinental, more central Asian than your Asian, okay, as these regions become intertwined. And having been an American official working on each of those three parts of Asia, I will just tell you, in two-thirds of the Eurasian landmass that I just described to you, the United States is diplomatically challenged, but much more importantly, we are commercially irrelevant in many of these places. All of Central Asia, minus Kazakhstan, where the US is the number one foreign investor in two sectors, both extractive, pretty much all of South Asia, minus India, and then East Asia, we're the big gorilla still. But in mainland Southeast Asia, other than Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, fading in relative terms, even Thailand, which in some ways is becoming a Japanese story. So where I'd wrap up, the more integrated the region is, the more adaptive the US has to be. And that's the standard against which you have to judge the Indo-Pacific strategy. So what I would say to you as a geographic concept, I love it because it's, it's high time the U.S. had an integrated approach mm. to Asia. After all, the first Americans in Asia were who? They were merchants. They were mariners. They sailed clipper ships. They didn't divide up Asia. They had integrated business plans. Right? There were ports in Calcutta, Canton. That's the way they thought about the region. So this post-Cold War anomaly, this Cold War anomaly is artificial. So geographically, I love it because it situates the United States in a way that's much more adaptive to the way I think the region's going to look. But the problem is it has to, 
you know, at some level, it's an attitude, not a policy, much less a strategy. And to make it a strategy, you have to have realistic but workable ideas about what the end states are. And you got to be able to match means to ends. And in the next round, we can discuss how successful our various countries are in that. But I think in some ways, it's been very successful, particularly on the defense side. And as I think you're hearing me imply, I think we're much less successful in the United States on the economics. You're exactly right, Evan. I'm going to come back to you uh, to ask uh, specifically what should the United States be doing? How is sure. it tracking with regards to its geoeconomic elements of its strategy right now? But first, uh, to you, Sujio, um, mm -hmm. some would claim that actually Japan has a, a claim to the term Indo-Pacific, and uh, perhaps you could explain why that's the case. OK, OK. So at first, you know, I really I say the, I want to say the great thanks to our US Study Center to bring me, me, me to he, this beautiful town from the very hot Tokyo. And, they, and they said, I have some problem, problem because you know, I came here on the August 11th morning. August 11th is my, birth, my, my, my wife's birthday. So I need to find some great gift, birthday gift for my wife to compensate my absence of her, her birthday. So this is a, my very important task for tomorrow. And then, anyway, about the uh, Indo-Pacific. Now, you know, Japanese, Japanese government say, usually say FOIP, uh, Freedom and Open Indo-Pacific. And the, uh, you know, Indo -Pacific, the framing of Indo-Pacific was, how to say, uh, first, first, first was said by the first, uh, prime, uh, first prime ministership of Abe-san, Mr. Abe. And uh, maybe the basic intention is to include India in uh, strategic calculation. And uh, at the same time, the recent trend in, uh, in the say, discussion of the FOIP in Japan is now the Japanese started to use the word vision rather than strategy. So uh, maybe since last year. And uh, that is, I think that's a kind of natural change, natural transformation. Because the strategy is a combination of ends, ways, and means. And the component of freedom and open in the Pacific is freedom, or you know, openness, connectivity, rule of law. Each can be ends, each can be ways, each can be means. So it is very difficult to, how to say, uh, establish a clear formulation of, of the ends, means, and uh, ends, ends, ways, and means uh, format. So uh, in the, at the same time, you know, freedom could be the Vision and openness vision can be the vision also, and the rule based order is all, can be also vision. So vision would be the better word. At the same time, uh, the government carefully remove the element or connotation to be interpreted as this is a confrontational strategy against China. So uh, the changing my observation is changing the word from strategy to vision is a part of this kind of uh, things. And uh, because you know, if if Japan say we want to have confrontation with China, no regional region, no no, no regional country would would follow us. And uh, at the same time, you know, just as you, uh, Japan also has an important economic relationship with China. So confrontation cannot dominate the bilateral relations. Of course, you know, we have some issues, some security problems, but still, that is not the, that that is just a part of the our relations. And uh, so. 
changing the world from vision, sorry, strategy to vision in price, Japan, Japan has no intention to uh, bring the cold war back to this region. And at the same time, uh, there exist some components of or some characteristics of competition. Now, competition and confrontation is different, and the competition, competitive implication still remains. And the, uh, just as following to the Donald Trump's national security, security strategy, uh, great, power, great, power, great, great power competition is coming back. I, uh, the kind of you know, uh, understanding is also shared with the Japanese. And uh, at the same time, this, this competition is not necessarily a defense competition. I mean, again, there is an aspect of defense competition, but that is not the all. And uh, uh, actually, you know, the, the current competition, the military, military component is just a part of the current competition. And uh, the role of military is more like a deep pedal tone to, how to say, to shape the regional situation rather than uh, to escalate the crisis to uh, more like the conflict. And that, so what is the non-military components of this competition? And that, that is, that are, I, I found, I think, I found there are four components of the, four, four power resources for this competition. The first one is technology, including AI or 5G. And the second one is natural resource, wide range of natural resources, including rare earth, rare metal to uh, energy. And the, the, the third one is capital, which is, which is necessary for investment for infrastructure. And the fourth one is location. Uh, location cannot be underestimated. And uh, at the same time, location can be defined by yourselves. For example, if you set the uh, arena, of a arena of a competition in Arctic Ocean, it's very difficult to win against Russia because Russia has geographical advantage. And if you think, if you put the uh, competitive focus on Eurasian, center of the Eurasian continent, again, China and Russia has uh, advantage. But, uh, but if we can, if we frame the arena of the competition in maritime area, then a maritime country or island country or Western community can have some advantage. So uh, how do you define, how do we define the, or how do you set the frame of competition? In geographic term, uh, has very important meanings for this competition. So uh, Indo-Pacific means Setting the frame of the, uh, setting the arena of the competition in maritime side rather than Eurasian continental side, which uh, makes our, uh, our game much more easier. So, so in this sense, you know, uh, now in the Pacific has very specific uh, utilization or specific meaning or specific utility to, for our competition. And then finally, I want to say, the competition is not for the sake of competition. So competition is for something. And uh, of course it can be, you know, in case of the Cold War, the finally US achieved the regime change of Soviet Union, or uh, 
how to say, the goal of the competition could be a kind of re-establishment of the balance of power. So you can have some flexibility to set the goal. And the, my observation, however, uh, for the for our side, I mean the how to say, the people who embraces free and open the notion of the free and not open. Uh, for the, for these people, the objective of competition might be, I think, will be about will be the way of life, people's way of life. I mean, we, we, there could be two models of way of life, which actually I think the first three raised by uh, Global Trend 2025. The first one, the first model could be, that is imagining imagine model, that is the combination of the state capitalism and the repressive digital transformation, which is now implementing it by chain. The alternative model, which is embraced by our community, is the combination of the market economy and the democratic digital transformation, which can be inefficient than the first model, but which, which will respect more freedom of the people. So, uh, so for, for the world, for, for the world as a whole, for this region, we need to persuade or we need to show the second model, I mean, the democratic market economy with democratic digital transformation is much more happier and it can be, uh, can be bring, bring more, more, more wealth to the people. That is really important uh, topic or important things of this competition. And in this context, back to the fight, free and open has very important meanings and to attract the people. So I think that is the current, the current situation, the current, current competition and the Japanese objective for that. Thank you. Thanks, Sugiyo. Look, just a quick follow-up on, on your comments just now. Uh, Japan has been uh, not only in the last couple of years, but more broadly over the last few decades at the forefront of infrastructure investment partnerships mm -hmm. in the region. And they have a lot to do with mm -hmm. people's ways of life. They also have a lot to do in terms of their governance standards and so yeah. forth with the quality and the nature of the internal regimes mm -hmm. uh, in which they're situated. Could you comment a little bit about the success or okay. the okay. past and, mm -hmm. and, and into the future of Japan's uh, sure. projects in that regard? No, uh, is there a big change in Japanese, how to say, international economic policy in 1985? That was the uh, timing of the Plaza Accord. And thereafter the Plaza, Plaza Accord, the currency rate has been drastically changed and the yen was rapidly appreciated. Then Japanese export companies need to export their factories rather than products to the region. So they invested, they, they expanded investment to Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, ASEAN countries. So, and that, that was a kind of origin of the current regional supply chain. So uh, one of the problems to extend the Japanese supply chain to the region is uh, there are no regional standards for the trade and uh, some kind of the infrastructure shorthaul. So uh, Japan invested also to infrastructure or the standardization of the institution and uh, you know, the recent, how to say, trade policy come from that. So the current Japanese focus on the connectivity has that kind of continuity from back to the 1980s. 
And uh, so uh, this is for the regional supply chain. And uh, of course, regional supply chain is very dynamic, continuously changing. So, uh, but I'll say reducing the transaction cost for supply chain is a very, one of the very serious Japanese national objective. I think that is will be continued, continue to be that one. Thanks very much. All right, we're turning now to you, uh, Lavina. Australia released a foreign policy white paper a couple of years ago. I think it mentions the word Indo-Pacific about 50 times. Uh, could you shed a little bit of light on what Australia is trying to achieve with its approach? Okay, thank you. Um, I also feel like I've got the most difficult of the four because you all probably know something about Australian <laughs> foreign policy. Um, so. <laughs> Um, well, what I would say about um, our strategy um, in terms of the free and open Indo-Pacific, if we look at the Australian Foreign Policy White Paper of 2017, it does say the words um, Indo-Pacific uh, about 50 times, but it also says three words, rules-based order, about 80 times. So um, what that says to, to me and, and probably says to all of you is that um, what what is really important to a middle power, a smaller country in a region of much bigger, more powerful countries, is uh, establishing a system of rules where smaller countries can exist and prosecute their interests in a, um, in a, a level playing field or as fair a, a playing field as possible but also to be able to have as free a foreign policy as we can, despite the fact that we don't have the same power capabilities as others. So if you look at the foreign policy white paper, it doesn't say the words free and open Indo-Pacific, but subsequent to um, 2017, Australia has in fact adopted the same framework of a free and open Indo-Pacific, but it also now includes the words that others have uh, included, including the word inclusive itself is now added to free and open mm -hmm. Indo-Pacific. So um, we can, I think, confidently say that um, our vision for the Indo-Pacific is very similar to the United States vision. So what does uh, a free Indo-Pacific mean? <laughs> it means uh, a Indo-Pacific where small and large states can make their foreign policy free from uh, coercive action, so they're not intimidated in, in making the, their foreign policy. Um, it also talks about, uh, the American version talks very much about free societies, encouraging and supporting free societies in our region. So that's a very much more liberal conception of what the Indo-Pacific is, in that it's there to support existing liberal democracies. Now, Australia doesn't specifically um, advocate that. We are very much more reticent about talking about liberal democracy promotion in any way in our foreign policy. So we do have aid programs, um, we do actually support good governance uh, and in very many terms use very similar language about good governance, rule of law in, in a domestic sphere. But um, we don't obviously say that we would like to promote democracy through our aid programs. Um, and open Indo-Pacific for Australia is very much about keeping the economies of this region um, as liberal economies, open for investment, open for trade, because obviously Australia very much needs an open investment environment to survive and to prosper here. 
So um, we, can, we can really say quite confidently that Australia and the United States um, and Japan, and I do think India does um, support some aspects of this, um, maybe less strongly in some senses, um, and we are very much on the, on the same page. Now, what I would say as well, though, is um, similar to what Evan, um, I'm sure Evan will talk about this much more in, uh, in terms of the United States, um, but for Australia, as I said, our interests are very much more about institutions, international law and order. Uh, we can't do as much by ourselves. Um, from a strategic sense, we really need allies and partners. Uh, but we also need a system that is fair. We need a system that has clear rules. And we need our allies and partners to help us um, to sustain the international order that we have. So very much a status quo power. Um, but uh, what we, I think, um, some of the things that are occurring now, um, let's say when we talk about the US-China uh, trade dispute, our, our interests in this trade dispute are very much about <laughs> the United States and China not coming to an accommodation purely on their own, uh, but that whatever uh, whatever the outcome of this trade dispute is really more or should be more about the rules. Um, it should be about what China is um, doing, how its political economy actually impinges on the current trading rules, um, how uh, like-minded partners can work together to actually either alter the rules if the rules don't actually cover the Chinese political economy, uh, but we should be supporting regimes and institutions that have a, a long-term benefit, not just a, a benefit between the US and China, but actually supporting the, the order um, that we know. Um, I guess, uh, I know Ashley, you asked us to talk also about what we could be doing together more, or will you Please. talk about that? Um, maybe that's Go the ahead. next Go ahead. conversation. Um, now, I think what um, gets a lot of press is our security side of our relationship. So when we talk about the quadrilateral, I'm sure there will be some questions about the quad. Um, the general consensus is the quad came back, but what is the quad doing? So I, I think there was an expectation that suddenly Australia, Japan, the United States and India would be exercising together, we would be steadily improving our interoperability, um, we will be creeping our missions and sending signals to China about what could and might happen. Now that hasn't really happened and I think that that's largely because uh, of India more than, more than the other three um, and I'm sure Raji can speak to that. Um, but I think that uh, because of India's concerns, which I'll let La Raji talk about and I understand, I think that uh, when we're talking about supporting a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, regional order, it's more than just about security. Security is one aspect and I do think, I'm quite confident, that we will actually work more together in a strategic sense. But it is very much about supporting um, a, a insti institutions and rules. And um, I think in particular, I, I think this comment this will come up again, is the implications of the Belt and Road Initiative for undermining the rules of international order. So, um, Ashley, shall I leave it there or yeah. you can come back to, to 
that. No, thanks very much, Lavina. Yeah. There's a lot on the table now for us to pick up in discussion. So I thank you for raising the Belton Road and the Quad. I think let's revisit each of those in turn a little bit. Uh, and first, maybe Raji, turning to you, sure. the, quadrilateral, uh, the, the quad arrangement, the quadrilateral security dialogue between Australia, the US, Japan, and the United States. From an Indian perspective, what's in it for India? Uh, do you agree with Lavina's view that it's an Indian concern that is preventing it from flourishing into a more muscular military uh, entity? Are there reasons on all sides for that not happening? What are your thoughts? I think the fact that the, uh, the Quad has come back for a second time and India became part of it shows that India is genuinely concerned about uh, the regional security dynamics. Um, the fact that uh, China is a next door neighbor with whom we have a long and uh, a long standing border and territorial issues, a country with whom there is a huge amount of trust deficit. Um, and uh, economically, we are all entangled with them at many ways. And I think that's partly uh, mo most of the world is kind of entangled with, the China, with China in economic terms. But when it comes to political and strategic engagements, I think that's where the uh, divergences come about. And how do we manage? How do we find a fine balancing act between those economic and strategic interests? I think that's the key. But being an immediate neighbor, I think we have our own compulsions in how we deal with China. It may not be the same set of concerns. It may not be the same set of manner in which we, uh, um, the US does deal with China. Uh, it, it has to be different the way India deals with China and because we are an immediate neighbor. We, uh, we want a good neighbor re relations. We may not be the best buddies, but we need a, a good relations. Uh, we need a peaceful neighborhood. If we, India itself has to grow and prosper, we need to ensure that our, our, own, uh, our neighborhood, our backyard is safe, and nobody is po poking at us from time to time. And I think that's been part of the problem, in a sense. When, um, uh, sh uh, when the Chinese leadership in the uh, late 1970s decided that they were going to focus on for, uh, for development, they, was, they were given a pretty benign neighborhood. And I don't think India can, uh, anybody can be envious of India's geography, India's neighborhood in a sense. On our left and right, we have problems and internal security issues. So there are several different security compulsions that come into play when India has to make a decision as to how we go about. But on the Quad itself, I don't think it is India entirely that is at uh, kind of a who's, at the, or the lack of enthusiasm. Having said that, I think there is a problem with India. For instance, even when Modi, when he talked about, I mean, he made a speech on this Shangri-La dialogue. Uh, he talked about, I think, I, I, to me, that speech was extremely dull and plain vanilla. Uh, he could have uh, used that platform to uh, clearly spell out the important partners, what are the strategic objectives of India, where does India stand, what is the vision for India 30 years from now, 20 years from now, and how does India plan to achieve those objectives? India could have used, Modi could have used that platform to uh, spell out those strategic uh, priorities much clearer, but I think he talked about every single country, every single partnership, and how each of them mattered to India. So in a sense, we talked about the informal summit with Putin, informal summit with the Xi, info, and uh, the Quad meetings, and so on and so forth. Maybe there was a compulsion because Modi was going to go to China a week, uh, two weeks from then, for the SEO summit, and therefore he didn't want to uh, ruffle the weather um, feather at that point of time. But there has been a broader tendency on the part of India to find accommodative space with China from time and again. So at 
at some t at some point in time, you, India is seen as balancing China in a much more effective manner. But there are many more times when you see India finding space to kind of join China and say, oh, we are not ganging against, against you. This is not something against you. And he, at the Shangri-La dialogue speech, for instance, he made it a very made it very clear that Indo-Pacific and the Quad or any formulation that come about is much more inclusive in nature. So uh, he tried to make it very clear to the uh, to the Chinese that it is not about them. It is, it's not them. It's a larger security dynamics that come into play, but we are not targeting you. I think that was a message that was uh, sent out very clear. So I think that's... Uh, that back and forth on India's uh, positioning on some of the Quad and the Indo-Pacific, I think that's been a bit of a problem. Uh, so many countries are confused, and it's not very clear uh, where does India stand on the Indo-Pacific. So it's far more, far less convincing when India talks about the Indo-Pacific and the Quad. But the fact is that in the Ministry of External Affairs set up a new uh, department of uh, new department of Indo-Pacific Affairs a few months ago. So I think. Uh, tactically, India is trying to do a lot of things to appease and keep the China borders um, uh, somewhat um, uh, somewhat stable. But at the same time, when it comes to longer-term uh, engagements and longer-term view of its own threat perceptions and the surroundings, I think India is very clear that there are longer-term cha challenges and these are not going to go away. The China threat is not going to go away. Uh, even after this, uh, the informal summit with uh, Putin, uh, uh, no, with uh, Xi Jinping last year, uh, everybody thought that that was a reset in the relationship and that things have been patched up, everything is going, going to be great between India and China. But the reality is that even the very next month when, he was, uh, when Modi was there in China for the SEO summit, he was a single leader amongst the, all the other Central Asian countries standing alone with a single voice to say that we are not going to endorse the BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. So when it comes to substantive issues, there has not been a change in India's position on many of these issues. But I think uh, um, and the run-up to the elections, clearly Modi did not want another Doklam-like crisis. Doklam was a major border standoff that happened for more than 70 days. Um, so clearly in the run-up to the elections, we didn't want another Doklam-like crisis that would happen uh, if, the, if you angered the Chinese a bit too much and so on and so forth. So I think there were tactical steps that have been taken by the Modi administration. Uh, in the last two years, but I think when it comes to longer term substantial issues, there have not been uh, any change. Uh, but at the same time, I think India is um, India is taking this kind of uh, um, uh, India is going to be embracing these concepts in a much more effective manner. Whether it is the uh, trilateral exercise with the India, U.S., uh, um, uh, Japan, and there have been a couple of other track. Uh, 1.5 dialogues, including even with uh, Australia and so on and so forth. And there are other engagements which include uh, Singapore, Indonesia, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think these are going to gain a lot more traction because uh, India is very clear that there has been some unwillingness or hesitancy on the part of the US from time to time to engage the region in a such a in a proactive fashion that the region expects. So there have been uh, some of the regional initiatives, but I think India as well as other partners are also very clear that you need the US. The US is a critical strategic glue uh, if the regions, uh, uh, these regional strategic formulations have to gain further traction. Because uh, even if you combine all the other major powers, for instance, India, you, uh, India and Japan, Australia, and, uh, and so on and so forth, or even bring in some of the Singapore, Indonesia, I think even if all these countries come together, their ability to balance China is still not there. 
the combined power is also not equal to a match and kind of uh, balance Chinese uh, growing power. So I think uh, the U.S., uh, the criticality of the U.S. as an important uh, uh, player in, in this regional. So many of yeah. the regional formulations that you see is more in a way to supplement the existing U.S. security alliance uh, arrangements in the region. Yeah. Um, natural, uh, India is in for the long haul in this uh, quad as, as well as the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, no, thanks Raji. And I think, you know, there are three really important points that you've just raised there. Um, that is my segue to you, Evan, so be ready. Uh, and I'm going to ask, try and ask you to tell a little bit of a story in a minute. Okay. Uh, th those three points are that you know, no one of these countries wants to confront China. Yeah. They're not seeking to confront China. And in fact, all of their respective white papers and Indo-Pacific strategy reports state that very clearly, that the preference is for an inclusive strategy. Uh, our own Prime Minister has talked about our great and powerful friends, uh, which might have raised, uh, pricked a few ears around the region, flipping that inversion that's only ever referred to Britain and the United States before, but recognising the centrality of uh, the economic relationship with China, not the investment necessarily, but the broader trade relationship with China to Australian interests. That's clear. At the same time, as you also recognised, uh, for various reasons, including power dynamics, including regional interests, uh, American allies and partners in the region, or Asia itself, to bring Asia back in, Evan, have been working together a lot more, collectively setting things up like the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the TPP-11. Um, in the absence of the United States for the time being, yeah. as ways of both uh, continuing to advance their own interests in the region, but also um, continuing to do things like security cooperation that, as you say, plug in to American interests. And only that, uh, uh, that sort of approach, is, sorry, that sort of approach is critical um, uh, as a complement for the United States uh, in balancing uh, uh, you know, military relations in the region, even as none of those countries are seeking to only focus on the military domain. So I think that that's really important. Evan, to you, I want you to ask you, if you don't mind, to pick up a little bit on this idea of China as a responsible stakeholder. We chatted a little bit about it uh, earlier in the week. Uh, and if you like, it was what everyone wanted. Um, the national security strategy of, of the current uh, Trump administration uh, suggests uh, that that is now off the agenda. But a responsible stakeholder can mean a lot of things, and it can apply equally to the military domain as to the economic domain. Where do you think that story is ending? Has it ended? So and are there ways? The US story of China, China as a responsible stakeholder, and the story of the United States and other allies and partners as being able to help shape and influence its path towards being one. Okay. So I think. I think you have to segment that into different, you got a lot packed into that. So I'll start with the stakeholder ship, hmm. then where are we in China, then the US-China. And I want to make a small comment on the quad. I'll come back. back Please. It'll, it'll illustrate something about the region. All right, so responsible stakeholder. Everybody these days, these days it's the fashion in the United States hmm. to kind of trash this. This was a concept at the core of a speech given by a former boss of mine, the Deputy Secretary of State, in the hmm. second term of the Bush administration, Robert Zellick who went on to become the president of the World Bank Group. Um, by the second term of President Bush, um, US rhetoric, in my view, uh, was lagging several years behind the reality of China's role in the international system. Um, if you look at what the US was saying about China at that time, the mid-2000s, 
the story ran something like this. We need to integrate China into the international system. But the problem was, structurally, China was in, right? China was a member of the Permanent Five of the UN Security Council. It was in the WTO after 2001. It had signed up to every protocol on everything from ozone depletion to chemical weapons. So since China structurally was in, uh, US rhetorical approach, much less a strategy premised on integrating China, really lagged behind the realities of China's structural role. So Zelik's point was not to have a scorecard for Chinese behavior. Um, it was a concept that was designed to bring the US rhetorical and substantive approach up to the realities of China's quite obvious regional and global role. So the point of that speech, if you go back and read it, was that the emphasis needed to change from structure to conduct and behavior. If China was in, then the question for China was how would it articulate its interests now that it had a seat at the table and was not on the outside with its nose pressed against the glass. And for the United States and its allies and partners, the question was how would we push this more integrated China to act in ways that were consistent with its stake, by which he meant that China had benefited greatly um, from being part of the system. Now, the speech, in my view, was conservative with a small c. It was designed to defend the existing order, because Bob kind of saw where things were going. Um, you know, and this is 14 years ago, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But I think people still talk about this speech, because I think um, that was his point. It was that China needed, not that the international order would be static, but that the United States needed to try to work with China to adapt, support, and sustain the international system that had enabled its success. Right? But it wasn't a scorecard. So when people trash this speech now, they talk about it as a scorecard rather than a concept. So they'll say, oh, in this area, China's not behaving responsibly. Uh, China did this, and it was inimical to US interests. China undercut this convention. All of that can be true without throwing out the basic conceptual insight that he had, which is that the issue really was conduct. And the issue today still is conduct, and who defines it, and what it means for our interests. OK, so now to bring the story up to today, I think if we just let's put the speech to the side, because it's a foil that people like to use. Um, I think where we are is that um, um, from the vantage point of many people in the United States, of all political persuasions, China is not behaving uh, the way they had hoped it would behave. I'll put aside the question of whether we expected it to behave that way, but we certainly did not behave in the way we would like them to behave, really on anything. Um, and so the question is what to do about that. And I think the current zeitgeist in the United States is that um, prior strategies and approaches really didn't work. Uh, and we need, at minimum, to rebalance the relationship towards something that, number one, is more confrontational. Number two, is not shy about calling out China for its bad behavior, by which the United States means behavior either not consistent with the norms, standards, protocols that China itself signed up to internationally. That's the point about WTO, incon WTO inconsistent economic behavior. Um, but also things that are not consistent with our interests. And then the question becomes, if you can't persuade China of that, how do you shape the strategic environment around them with partners, allies, and others to do that? 
And that's the yardstick by which you have to judge US policy. And I think the problem the United States has is not just that China isn't behaving the way the United States wants it to, but that what motivates the leadership in China are principally things that are specific to China. Um, frankly, when Xi Jinping wakes up in the morning, the first five things that pop into his head are all domestic. Okay, How to keep the Communist Party in power, how to grow the economy at a sufficient rate to, number three, create 10 to 11 million new jobs a year for the people that are entering the workforce. Uh, number four, how to deal with demographics that are decidedly not in their favor. China's getting old before it gets rich. Uh, it doesn't have a demographic dividend the way India does, for example. And then finally, um, a growth model that was energy intensive but energy inefficient and environmentally extremely unfriendly. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I haven't been really involved in environmental policy, but you know the air, the water, all of, all of these things. And we can return to that if you want in the Q&A. So I think the problem the U.S. has is first one of effectiveness, but then second that China's not responsive. Um, so that then comes to how do you shape the environment around them. And I think that's where the United States really has the problem because it is true that all of the countries up here say they don't want to confront China and they're, gonna, they're open to a constructive relationship with China. Um, it, it's hard for me to look at current US policies with a straight face and imagine that that's said largely without a sense of irony. As official rhetoric, I get it. But if you think just about the trajectory of the relationship right now, the security dimension, the US and China have clashing security concepts in East Asia. Taiwan, South China Sea, how the region should be ordered, which brings us to the economics. This was the glue of the relationship. Flows of goods, capital, people, technology. These countries were enormously integrated. $700 billion trade relationship, $700 billion. $100 billion plus in US foreign direct investment stock in China, $60 billion plus of Chinese foreign direct investment stock in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of students. Okay, so where are the policies going in both countries? Not just in the United States. Goods, we've got tariffs, and then reciprocal and retaliatory tariffs that are designed to do things that will restrict the flow of goods. And if you pick up the paper any day of the week and see what people are saying about tariffs uh, on intermediate goods, it's, it's, it's really become restrictive. Flows of capital, Chinese capital flows to the United States have literally fallen off the cliff. And that's because of the reforms to the foreign investment re review mechanisms in the United States. But also, China's not particularly welcoming foreign capital on their side. So again, capital flows in both directions, restricted. <laughs> flows of people, uh, you may have read their issues with visa reciprocity on both sides. Um, there's also a view that some people in the United States take that we should not be training the next generation of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics specialists in China, uh, many of whom will go into dual-use areas that will compete with us and strengthen China in relative terms. And that's leading to a debate about visa policies, education openness, and so on. And finally, there's technology. And I'm sorry, that's the core of it. This is not a trade war. It's a technology war. Um, and there, um, if you've not heard of the Export Control Reform Act, um, you should. Um, uh, there are areas of technology that are obviously national security sensitive, and so the goal should always be to have a small yard with high fences. We have people in our country now who would like to have a yard about the size of this room and then down to Pitt Street with high fences. Um, and the definition of emerging and foundational technologies, which is the core in this legislation, is extremely elastic. And it can be defined in ways that will sequester a lot of technology inside the United States. And so then the question becomes, does that isolate China and degrade its rise technologically, as I think some people in the United States would like 
not everybody, but some. Um, or do we face a situation where pretty much every country in the region and in Europe and beyond wants to maintain an R&D relationship with China? In which case, the United States requests, runs the risk of sequestering so much in the US that it isolates itself. So that's the challenge. And I think we're not in a good place, but the next phase of this depends a lot on what the President of the United States decides between now and the political conventions next summer. Not about a comprehensive trade deal, because there's not going to be a comprehensive trade deal, in my view, having watched this for a long time, but what I would call a skinny deal. <laughs> um, one that puts a floor under the free fall that we're in in many areas of the relationship and allows the President to go to those parts of his electoral base that he cares about and to tell a story to them about success that is consistent with the image that he has consistently conveyed about himself over the years. And that's the core. Can I make one tiny comment? No, OK, if I'll come back to it. Maybe I'll, let's come back to that I'll, in the q and I want to get a, a quick question sorry. into Sugyo and Levina, and then I'm coming to you out here for questions. So be ready. There's a couple of roving mics ready to go. Sugyo, Japan, unlike Australia, um, <clears throat> and unlike the United States, does have direct security tensions mm -hmm. with China mm -hmm. in the East China Sea, in the Senkaku Islands, yep. in other parts of the region. Mm -hmm. How much does that complicate uh, and uh, restrain Japan's own ability to ex expand and act upon an Indo-Pacific strategy more broadly? No, how to say it. Now, the media coverage to East China Sea is, has been going down, went down. But uh, the reality is China still continuously send government vessels inside Japanese contiguous water. So their pattern hasn't been changed at all. And sometimes they try to use a drone, by how to say, and some kind of new things uh, in, in that area. So that is, that continues. And uh, so from the defense side or Coast Guard side, uh, to protect these islands, or to protect, actually, East China Sea has two, two issues. And uh, to protect these two issues are very serious or prioritized strategic challenge. And at the same time, now that these issues are treated in, how to say, really professional way. And so, uh, like, you know, maybe because of the emergence of Trump, President Trump, uh, China wanted to improve the relation with Japan. And uh, so that kind of improvement movement were continued, uh, separating with the uh, East China Sea situation. And uh, how to say, I don't know. I'm not sure whether this trend, I mean, this decoupling uh, is con continues or not. But uh, now, Doing, the East, doing what we need to do in East China Sea and uh, improving the relationship is, yeah. I'll say, uh, can be coexisted. And uh, in the foreseeable future, I think that continues. It depends on US and North Korea, I think. Yep. And hopefully we'll come back to that in the Q&A. Finally, Lavina, um, I want to give you an opportunity to to plug your fantastic report for the US <laughs> Study Center. You talk a little bit about there that Australia needs to actually take more of an interest in democracy promotion. What do you mean by that and how might it work? Okay, um, I think the, the term democracy promotion 
obviously sets off some alarm bells for a lot of people. So the idea of uh, changing regimes in Iraq and building liberal democracies from nothing, um, from communities, societies that have never had that experience. Now, um, when I've, I've written a paper about democracy promotion and how it relates to the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And when I first started thinking about it, it wasn't immediately clear to me what the link was. So I had the topic, but not the, not the link. And I think the more that I looked into the, the evidence and the data, the more I realised that there is actually evidence out there um, that China is actually acting um, in many ways as a promoter of autocracy in the world. Mm -hmm. So we have um, one, a 13-year um, a decline in democracy in the world, according to Freedom House. Uh, you've also got uh, survey data uh, across the world, but also across the region, that shows that commit, committed de Democrats, uh, it's a very shallow percentage of, of people in the Indo-Pacific, uh, normal people, who are actually truly committed to democracy. So it's around, uh, I could, I could, I don't, actually I think I have the statistics somewhere here, but it's, it, they surveyed people in, in India, in the Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, okay, admittedly Vietnam. Um, but the, the percentage of people that are truly committed to Democrats is around 15%. And a committed Democrat is somebody who thinks that liberal democracy is the only legitimate form of political rule there is. So outside of that, there's around 50% of people around the Indo-Pacific who actually consider other forms of autocratic rule like uh, rule by strongmen, um, rule by um, autocrats, by technocrats, uh, all as being highly legitimate forms of government. So uh, quite a strong percentage. Now when you look at the data of how China uses its foreign aid program, so foreign aid but also non-concessional loans, the data from around 2000 to 2014 is very clear that China has used its foreign aid and its non-concessional loans to largely fund other autocratic governments. Hmm. And what the effect of that, other studies have shown, is that that uh, allows those governments to resist pressures to democratise within their own societies. So efforts by countries like Australia, like the European Union, the United States, uh, the institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, uh, to try and, and help with, uh, or at least encourage countries to practise good governance, are effectively undermined by China's uh, aid and non-concessional loans. So they can feel relatively immune to these outside pressures. Now, um, the connection that I've drawn between the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, if you remember, we talked about what does free mean. Um, free also means encouraging free and open societies in the region. So if you've got uh, a new, much major project like the BRI, um, you know, obviously um, China likes to say that there's around $4 trillion worth of investment available, but others will say they like to double count and it might not be that much, but it's still a lot of money to throw around the region. Um, you've probably all heard about debt trap diplomacy and the, the use of economics to achieve other geostrategic aims. So that, that is out there, but I think what's also um, should be remembered or, or maybe uh, what should be clearer is that when you've got even democracies in our region, so there's actually a lot of democracies in our region, but actually quite weak democracies. 
Um, they're also very interested in infrastructure development and the countries where these debt trap uh, issues are most severe or have come to the fore are weak democracies with poor accountability mechanisms that means that corrupt, dare I say corrupt governments or governments that are not institutionally constrained um, are able to effectively um, trade their, their own personal gain for the national interests, the future national interests of their country. So where the connection is, is I think that part of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy should be in recognition that democracy promotion is actually a direct counter to efforts to promote autocracy around our region. So countries like all of us uh, that we represent here um, should also be thinking about how we can work together to help societies within our region be more resilient to, um, and, and I would say to guard against that idea that we are imposing our values on other countries. Of course, we don't want to do that. Uh, we should pick countries that are already liberal democracies to some extent, maybe weak democracies that have institutional problems, uh, where they will more likely to actually welcome our support to help them uh, to build up their uh, different arms of government, to, to build up their um, technical capacity, their electrical, electoral processes, to help civil society, to help uh, free press. Um, that, I think, should be welcomed and we really can't be accused of promoting democracy and imposing values if they themselves already profess to be liberal democracies. No, thanks so much for that, Lavina. And may I commend to you all uh, Lavina's report at ussc.edu.au should you be interested in reading more about it. <laughs> but for now, we've got about 15 minutes for Q&A from the audience. I hope you've got your questions ready. Janine's over here with the mic, and I see James already. First cab off the rank, please. James Dorian. I'll take three, and then I'll return to the panellists. Uh, it's a pretty simple question. Um, really, if the two leading hegemons in the region, one rising, one declining, are acting so <laughs> irresponsibly. Um, I, that's drift I catch from this conversation, but also from the recent visit of the US Secretary of State Pompeo, who's talking about putting missiles in Darwin. Uh, that seems pretty irrational and irresponsible. But also from China and in behavior in the South China Sea. Why, if we're going to, you know, if we're grasping for concepts or ideas and a lot of them seem to be like zombie ideas that should have died a long time ago. I would include the Quad. Why not go back to the non-aligned movement? Um, the fact is, you, you did mention that you know the local balance of power cannot possibly match China, right? But the non-aligned movement was pretty effective at playing off the two superpowers of the day. I'm thinking of India with the idea of a zone of peace, the Bandung Conference in 1955. You know, maybe it's time for the middle powers to figure out the old ideas and the old concepts. If everybody wants to go back to the Cold War, why don't we go back to the non-aligned movement as a possible response to that uh, zombie idea? Right, sure. no, thanks, James. Yeah. Um, I've got another question, gentleman over there on the right. Mike, just wait for the microphone, please, sir. <coughs> Um, I'm intrigued not to have heard any mention of the impacts of climate change as strategic future issues in this part of the world. 
I'm thinking of things like food security and the, the real risk both in the Pacific and in the Asian subcontinent of large uncontrolled movements of population in response to climate change type developments. Thanks very much. And gentleman down the front here. Okay, thank you for conceding. Uh, lady down the front here, please. Just one moment for the microphone. I come from the, I come from the high tech sector, and this is a real example. Um, I work with uh, a Russian who's a programmer, uh, a Mexican who's a data analyst, uh, with an Irishman who's also a data analyst, with an Irish woman who is a data reviewer. I work with some Indians who are programming. Australian does the planning. Um, a Sri Lankan is doing some strategic analysis. They will go home. They will speak to their friends in China. Oh, sorry, the artificial intelligence uh, specialist is from China. And I can replicate this in pretty well any company that I would work in. Uh, we will go home. I will buy from Aki Stone Artist in Japan. I will um, do some shopping in Macy's in America. I will buy some jewellery from India. If you were to tell any of us that that is going to change or that we can't continue to do that, we'd think you're bonkers and we'd find a way to work around it anyway because we know how to manipulate all the data to make it happen and put pretty programs in place to make it true. So I think that technology in any strategic future really absolutely is a game changer and I just wondered if you had yeah. any comments on that. That, that's a great question. So look, we've got three. I'm going to come down the line here and get your responses on all of them. Um, starting with, with the last, we have the, really the question about where globalisation and technological diffusion and technology supply chains collides with strategic competition. There we go. <laughs> Truly global. Uh, second, we have the, the challenges of, of, of climate change in the region and whether they pose a reason for collective action or a cause for conflict. And, and finally, to James's question about ir ir the irresponsibility of raging hegemons and can we go it, uh, alone or can we clump together in a non-aligned movement as in the past? Raji. Yeah, I think uh, this is something that India has thought about as to how do we go in different, uh, are there, what are the different kind of strategies one can adopt. But I think the NAM of the past is, was very different. India did have certain luxuries, certain liberties, because the two superpowers of uh, the Cold War days were distant. Uh, they were not right next door to India. So in a sense, India had the luxury of uh, playing one against the other from time to time. We did that quite successfully. And, but tomorrow, uh, it, the emerging power dynamics and the way it's turning out to be there's one, one pole that's going to be the US, and the other is going to be, if, if it's China, going to be emerging as an important uh, pole. I think that's going to put India in a very uh, in a tight spot. Uh, you, because on the one hand, it's an immediate neighbor. You need some decent relations that's going to go on. But at the same time, in terms of your overall political, strategic, and other interests, it lies with the other pole. So how do you balance that relation? I think that's going to be extremely tight spot. And non-alignment, I don't think it's going to work uh, very efficiently as it did in the past. 
uh, because the like I said, the Cold War superpowers were not right next door to India. So I think that was a very different situation. But I think that's where uh, India needs to create more maneuverable and more uh, strategic options. And I think uh, that's that's once again the reason why we are looking at other trilaterals, other minilaterals, and so on and so forth. Uh, because one single option is not going to give all the uh, possible solution to India. India has to work out a number of different formulations. But in that regard, I would also say that, for instance, the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy or the Quad and other kind of strategies that you're looking at cannot be just military and strategic uh, alone. Uh, there has to be a strong economic component to it. Because I think, for instance, when China is the rationale as to why these many of these groupings have come together, China has used economics as a tool, economics and connectivity projects and infrastructure projects to connect to the rest of the world and to increase its influence, to strengthen their own national interest promotion in a sense. So how do we beat that? That cannot be done by just political strategies and kind of military uh, tools are not going to be the way we need to do, deal with that. So, And I think that's where the Indo-Pacific strategy, one weak component is the economic muscle and economic part of the uh, uh, strategy. Uh, the connectivity projects. We, uh, For instance, India has, again, very little material capacity to do that. But at the same time, how does then India partner with other like-minded countries? In that regard, for instance, India and Japan have talked to each other a lot about how we can do things in third countries, for instance. Uh, India and Japan have talked about doing things in um, Sri Lanka. Uh, some of the other countries in the Middle Eastern region and so on and so forth. But again, these have not really gone, moved beyond you know, the conceptual stage as it is. So we have the uh, Partnership for Quality in Infrastructure, PQI. That's one major in uh, initiative between the two sides. Uh, second, you have the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor. Uh, something similar to the BRA concept in that sense. But again, these uh, both are democracies, so they do take a long time before we actually come to, uh, come to uh, um, realize these objectives and so on and so forth. So they have remained at the conceptual, conceptual stage at, at this point of time. But I think this is where we need to make a movement. Uh, one quick point about the, for instance, uh, uh, debt trap diplomacy and kind of things Lavina talked about and touched upon it. And I think, again, the lack of economic component in the Indo-Pacific strategy is so loud and clear. Um, even after Sri Lanka had to uh, um, sort of uh, put the Hambantota port on a 99-year lease to the Chinese, when the next debt repayment cycle came up, the Sri Lankans went back to China asking for more fresh infusion of money. Where What happened to all the major Indo-Pacific powers? Where are we in terms of extending support, financial and other kind of support, infrastructure support to these countries? So if some of these countries may want to do a pushback on China on some of these projects because they are, they are not economically feasible, but unless there are alternate options for these countries to choose from, it's going to be a serious problem. So I think the one of the weaknesses yeah. in the Indo-Pacific strategy is the economic component, and that's something that we need to, the major powers have to think about. Even I, I think see, but I can answer that. Sure. Where were the other powers? The, the other powers, particularly American sure. firms, would yeah. finance that through global capital markets. If I'm not mistaken, Sri Lanka was something like $64 billion in debt to commercial creditors, before, even if you take the yeah. Chinese out of the sure. picture. So with that kind of debt load, the question is why international lenders from the United States and major capital-providing powers would, would be in the mix. I mean, it's just you run into market dynamics. The US doesn't have state-backed firms that it can finance infrastructure projects sure. or state-backed banks. 
So I think that's that's part of the problem in these no, places. Sure, yeah. the just Evan, isn't. can I ask you just in yeah. the interest of time? We've just yeah. got a couple of minutes left. If you can, if you can maybe respond to the question about technology, and then I'm going to come down down the line and get a, a brief comment from each of you. Yeah, you know, everybody in the tech business says this is decoupling. This is bonkers. But I will just tell you, there are a lot of people in the United States, particularly from the national security side of our bureaucracy, spending a lot of time thinking about how to affect this. And I mean affect as an action verb. <laughs> um, and the United States has a lot of tools to play. I mean, if you haven't noticed, the United States is currently trying to put China's most successful global company out of business. Okay, I mean, the United States didn't just ban Huawei, right? Didn't just ban Huawei, put it on the entity list. And putting it on the entity list means no supply. It's, this is murder. <laughs> so, so that's the thing. And I, I understand the dynamics in the industry. I used to, I, I lived in Palo Alto. I've seen it. But I mean, I think you have to look at the effects of some of the policy choices. There's a reason Chinese money is not going into growth firms in the Valley anymore, really at all. And one reason is that if you look at the new investment screening mechanisms in the United States, they use this, what we call our CFIUS process, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It used to be focused really on control, right? Controls, it was acquisitions and M&A deals. And then with a narrow definition of national security that was at the discretion of the, largely of the Treasury Secretary, but, but still um, national security. What this latest round of reforms has done rightly in my view, is to try to capture categories of investment that were not just about control. So things that are below the threshold of control, growth capital investments in technologies or strategic industries that have security <coughs> or dual use implications. Um, and therefore, and, and then to have a much more elastic view of national security. And so the US government has a lot of tools. Um, and um, I think that's where it's going. But you can't make a generalizable statement about decoupling. You really have to dig into sectors. And a lot of what people think is possible is maybe not possible. But a lot of, a lot of what people think is bonkers is quite possible. And I think um, you can see that in the way the Chinese are adapting to this. Because the Chinese are trying to indigenize a lot of stuff where they're very determined to forestall the perils of dependence. Yeah. And to be fair to the US, I mean, China's had an indigenizing approach since the 1950s. But I mean, the Chinese reaction to this shows something about what they're seeing that I think maybe you're not seeing. Thanks, Evan. Sugiya Luvina, can I get you each to respond to one of those questions? Actually, uh, I want to answer both. In, the okay. in, one, in one answer. Hmm? Fantastic. <laughs> Please, proceed. About climate, you know, if you look at the Asia Pacific, or well, Indo Pacific, you can find one characteristic that is, is Indo-Pacific state is very strong. So one of the big cha big challenges for the climate change is to it, it makes the state fragile, and it, it can uh, make a failed state. That is the case in, in Africa. But in case of Asia, you, you look at North Korea, look at Myanmar, uh, this, this in, in, even in that case, state can control the society. So, uh, so that is, one of the hard say characteristic to deal with climate change in this region, I think. And about technology, uh, now you know, for a long time, Western community enjoys a technological advantage. So uh, you know, the technology is a, has, has already been already been a game changer back to the 17th century, and uh, Western community has enjoyed the advantage. And but now China is challenging. You know, Alibaba 
Baidu, Tencent, Hawaii has much more competitive than Western, uh, Western counterparts. So we need to compete with that. But the big problem is if you have long-term planning for innovation, you are guaranteed to be failed. So innovation needs to be very adaptive. It must not be the base of the planning. So, uh, so in a sense, how to say, we need to be very adaptive. In that sense, Western community, especially Five Eyes Light community, has very serious disadvantage. I, I, I bet you don't know one of the very, very emerging areas of the market of AI. That is translation technology. Because Chinese, Japanese, Korea needs translation technology. Why you expect I'm talking in English here? <laughs> so, so that kind of translation market doesn't exist in Australia, India, and the US and the UK. So that kind of innovation is happening in non-English speaking country. And that could be serious, that could make a serious game changing. So I think English speaking people should be more humble about this fact. <laughs> And, and well said, Sugiya. Lavina. Um, I'll just say, speak to your question about climate change. Uh, it was yours and some other gentleman over there. Um, if you look at the four countries that are represented on this t stage, we all have very different climate change policies and interests. And I think that that's primarily why we don't talk about it. So it's not going to be, I think, a, a big part of our um, agenda as part of the Free and Open Indo-Pacific because I think we probably wouldn't be able to do anything consistently together. So we've got India, who is a huge developing country, um, the United States that's withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Uh, Australia is in the Paris Agreement but um, is not enthusiastically uh, <laughs> setting the pace. And, and Japan, I actually don't know Mm -hmm. how Japan is going, but I think Japan is mm -hmm. probably doing its best. Yes. <laughs> going by past, mm -hmm. past yeah. uh, experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's part of it. I can see uh, we're obviously all very security focused and even when we talk about economics, we're thinking about the geostrategic implications of economics. So I can see that perhaps we might do things together in places like the Pacific, especially Australia, where we can see that the Pacific Island countries, the environment is actually a huge thing for them. So that could be, in fact, part of uh, how we helped help and um, persuade our Indo-Pacific neighbours that we are their preferred partner. We already are, but we have to keep on justifying that. Thanks, Lavina. And look, um, I'm sorry, okay. we're going to have to yep. stop here now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, and uh, please, let me thank all of you. I know we've gone a little bit over time this evening. I'm sure you'll all agree this has been a really fascinating and, and, and multi-dimensional panel tonight. So please join with me in thanking all of our panelists.